0: And welcome to the bridges between us podcast i'm your host matt schenker this week we have child psychologist dr mona delahook on as a guest and i am wildly excited i believe she's one of the most important voices in the world right now for helping us reshape systems that meet children's needs truly now before we dive into the conversation i'd like to share a little bit about why i personally Think this conversation is so important and why I'm so excited. See, I really began my journey of seeking to learn everything I possibly could about neurobiology, psychology, neuroanthropology, history of education, policy, pedagogy, counseling theory, mindfulness, act, and really the science of connection in our nervous system about 10 years ago. And that began because. I had a wildly difficult childhood with trauma, and I was disconnected from my embodied experience for most of my life. I felt overwhelmed on the inside, and so I felt chaos. And so I caused chaos on the outside. I have visceral memories of spending my elementary school years mostly under a desk, screaming at anyone who would come and check on me while at the same time desperately hoping that they wouldn't go anywhere. And in my teenage years, that led me down a path of addiction. And eventually, I decided to take a look at my life and i wanted to make some significant changes and that led me on a path to wanting to learn more about what kids need in order to thrive what we all need as humans in order to thrive then that led me into school counseling and eventually after studying all these things a little over five years ago i had a pretty solid grasp on how to help people heal relationships with themselves and build social emotional skills and then i got my first job as a counselor and school behavior coach. And before school even started, I got to meet with every single grade level. And we got to talk about what the role of a school counselor is. I talked to them a little bit about the difference between shame and guilt and the science of regulation and how connection relates to behavior. And teachers were excited. And we engaged in back and forth conversation. They loved learning about the neuroscience of accountability and I was excited. And then in the very first week of school, I walked into a first grade class And just before they were going to lunch, there was a teacher standing next to this first grade boy's desk, holding his arm up as he had his head down on the desk crying. And she was telling the class, everybody look over here, look over at this bad boy. He has been a very bad boy. You have been a very bad boy. And then she asked the class, she said, class, what is going to happen to him? And they all said, he has to clip down. That's right, she said, you're bad, you clip down. I stood there horrified for just a moment. Luckily they were about to leave for lunch. So I walked over there and I suggested that the teacher take the class to lunch. And I helped that boy regulate, move through what he was feeling. And what was happening in that moment. And eventually we repaired some things with that teacher, but the lingering question from that interaction that I was left with was, what did this teacher need that she didn't have? She was a hardworking teacher and she planned extensively well for classes and invested a ton of time and energy into teaching. She clearly cared, and yet she didn't realize the harm she was causing or how she was even undermining her own goals. What was the exact information that she needed to understand? What concepts did she need to know? What skills did she need to develop? And what resources did she need so that she could better respond in that situation? Well, I sat with that question for a long time. And in seeking to answer that question, I did a lot of work with that teacher and with that school and eventually launched my own business. But oh man, I would have loved to have had Dr. Delahook's book, Beyond Behaviors, right then and there as a blueprint. So I'm excited today to ask her really about that question for us to explore it together. So Dr. Mona Delahook is with us today. She's a clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. She's a speaker, trainer, consultant, and author of the book Beyond Behaviors. And this next week, she's releasing a new book on March 15th called Brain Body Parenting, which you can pre-order on Amazon right now. Dr. Delahook, I've literally just finished reading your book today. It's such an honor to get to talk to you today. And there's, there's just so much I'm excited to talk to you about. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's really, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. I'm so passionate about it as you are.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I wonder if we can start with you telling us a little bit about the story of who you are and how you came to care about helping people understand children's needs.
1: Mm. Well, I think I can go back. <laughs> You can go back pretty far, depending on how far you want to go. But I loved your intro, and that that just uh, made my heart feel uh, so compassionate for your for your background. And I think that our childhoods do kind of um, forecast maybe how we live our lives and what we choose to study. So I think yeah. that it probably did start in early childhood, where in uh, kindergarten. I was uh, referred to uh, my mother told was told to go and get me tested because I was mute. I couldn't talk at school. Mm. And so the story start probably started early. Um, And my earliest memories there were, was that I enjoyed school, but I just couldn't talk. I was kind of frozen. (laughs) You get me home and I was fine and talking and, this was quite a while ago, you know, and, and the system, luckily my mom, um, she, she was an immigrant and she didn't, she didn't really uh, trust the U.S. system of, of, uh, you know, giving young children psychological tests. And they told her that I, I had some social uh, deficiencies and she's, that She told me she said something like, well, that's ridiculous. She's just a young child and just walked me out of there and told me I was fine. Um, so <laughs> but that, I think that early memory tells me looking back on that self. I know I was a sensitive child. Mm. I know I was very, um, I needed a lot of adult support from the, from the environment. And when I didn't feel safe, I clammed up. I know now exactly why because I've studied through through the brain and the body and neuroscience I know why but and so I think the reason I probably ended up as a psychologist and wanting to study this field was that I wa- don't want other people to suffer uh, needlessly, and so many little children and older children as well aren't properly understood as I wasn't. And mm. it's very fulfilling for me to just to find a career. when I when I was uh, you know probably middle middle school, I found out there was a career called psychology where you could help people feel better. <laughs> like <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> wow. So I mean, then the meantime, from middle school on,
0: did you just know?
1: I knew. It's so strange. It's, I mean, I was a, I was a bit of a bookworm, and I had severe, um, I had severe asthma as a child. So I had to back then. They they didn't let you go into PE and stuff. So I would just read books, and I read this book called Dibs in the Search of Self. And it was about a little boy, a, psych- a psychologist who helped a little boy who was mute and who couldn't talk, learn to find his voice. And I, that was when I was 11. So after that, I told everyone I wanted to be a psychologist. And <laughs> once I figured out how to do that, I didn't realize it would take so many years of schooling. But anyway, I ended up <laughs> becoming a psychologist at uh, I think I was 25 and a half or 26. I went straight through. Yeah.
0: Wow. Now, and in, in your books, you talk about how studying to be a psychologist, you, you learned an extensive amount, though something that you didn't really learn officially through your education was a whole lot about neurobiology and the nervous system. Yeah. So when exactly did you begin to learn about the nervous system and neurobiology and how that relates to our psychology?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, about a decade. So you're right. I learned, uh, in traditional psychology training and mental health training, uh, you, you, you learn a lot about, um, behaviors and, and cognition, thinking, behavior management, um, cognitive behavioral approaches, how to, how to do assessments, you know, all of those things, but an, a neurodevelopmental, um, uh, approach, isn't taught in graduate school, wasn't taught in graduate school, still really extensively is not taught. So about a decade into my career, I just felt that guy was, I was running into brick walls with my treatment techniques mm-hmm. with children. They, it didn't feel, it didn't feel satisfying. And I thought either I've, I've chosen the wrong profession or I need to learn more. So I stepped aside for three years um, about a decade in and I studied neurodevelopment and it was kind of by chance, I decided to become an infant and toddler specialist because I thought, well, if I could go to prevention, helping parents understand babies, this would be easier than helping parents understand depressed uh, and, and lost teenagers. So um, yeah. So that's where I, I, I met a, um, people in the, who were, who were, who were studying that, although I did, it wasn't called that back then, but I met Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weider. They were two people who were researchers and, and, um, clinicians studying infancy and toddlerhood. And I, I learned with them with their group and got a certificate in that, in that method and became an infant and toddler, uh, mental health specialist. And then I realized when I when I re-entered into my work, I realized that what I had learned was in complete um, opposition to what I was seeing in schools. And your story, it just like almost breaks my heart about the clip chart and the little boy being humiliated. Matt, that's in the last, like, decade right or five years I mean that
0: was five years ago that
1: was five years ago my gosh it just kind of really just makes me take a deep breath because those I witnessed those things and much worse in um in the special needs population and the autistic children that I observed you know children being put in calm down rooms and being being isolated and secluded and sometimes restrained for behaviors that I then knew were stress responses, were their nervous system begging for help. And those behaviors were interpreted as non-compliant. And that, that was the moment, um, after, uh, working at, with clients directly for about another decade, cause I really wanted to make sure that this new way of looking at things worked. But after about a decade, that's when I started uh, a blog and I started writing about it. And I got so many, so many parents just calling me and saying, this has happened to me too. This is happening. And that's what kind of gave forth to beyond behaviors. The book I wrote, um, 20 kind of leads me
0: into sort of a big question for you, um, which is, you know, in the opening pages of your book, Brain Body Parenting, you say that the big problem is that too often we focus on a child's behaviors instead of the child. We're concerned about solving problems instead of cultivating relationships and building bonds. Can we talk a little bit about why? Why are so many parents and educators more focused on a child's behavior instead of a child's needs? Why did those so many of the teachers at that school that I stepped into that many of them had recently graduated from teacher education programs? Why did so many of them believe that not only that it was okay to publicly shame a child or to try to solve their, their behaviors as problems, but not only that it was okay, but that actually, they thought it was effective.
1: Yes. And can we also say, you may, you may have said this, but can we also say that we believe that those are well-intentioned teachers. Those are people who want to help children, right? Teachers don't go into the business for, to make money or, or, you know, necessarily, but, but they're well-intentioned. So what's going on here? And the, the reason is that Our our modern education system and our modern mental health system. And if I say modern, I really mean the last hundred years. Okay, so the the fields developed within the last hundred years. So in the last, say, 50 or 60 years, the stronghold in research, in psychology really was Beha- uh, looking at behaviors, some very interesting research came out out of Harvard and um, the the uh, the labs there, looking at rats and looking at how you can alter animal behaviors uh, through reinforcement schedules. It was incredible research at the time because they were doing these. They were showing that you can teach rats and and other animals, and dogs, how to learn. It was very interesting research. It got translated into human research and they, and they did uh, look at be, something called behavior modification. So,
0: And this is that, the birthplace of behavioral psychology and behavioral therapy and folks like B.F. Skinner that you're talking folks about.
1: Folks like B.F. Skinner. Exactly. Exactly. The Skinner box where, where they have those, 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 the things you learn about in undergraduate psychology, you know? Yeah. And yeah, um, And then it got translated into a kind of a program for looking at humans uh, who were really suffering and struggling at the University of Washington. Um, And then later on at UCLA with someone named Ivar Lovas, who did studies with with human children, um, mostly children who who were diagnosed with autism. And anyway, the there was a lot of energy around those studies that that tested a very small um, outcome but they certainly certainly did not test emotional well-being self-regulation how that human nervous they didn't look at nervous systems they looked at surface behaviors and this is the the trend now that i am proposing and, and other people are that now that we know More. We need to move our from our target as being behavior, the surface behaviors as the target of our interactions, to looking at behaviors as a signal of what is happening inside our children's nervous systems and our own. Because that opens up a whole new way of viewing our children. And you know, and the way
0: the way you frame it in the book is actually a really bold claim which i loved which is in the opening chapters you you give what many parents have been asking for forever which is a roadmap to parenting you tell them you're going to lead them to a roadmap to parenting Mm -hmm. and the kick is the roadmap is the child's nervous system
1: yes it's customizing our parenting to the child you have and even even more um, it's the roadmap is map is in the real time because our nervous systems shift in real time. We are, we are sensing reacting humans and our autonomic nervous system specifically reacts to everything from the thoughts we have to the sounds we hear to the foods we taste. So yeah, I'm I'm making a pretty A pretty bold claim. And that is, I'm going to give you a roadmap. And, and actually the roadmap is your child.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what do you say to folks? I mean, it breaks my heart really when we have conversations about our education system, because when we really look at the science, like you're saying, we realize that children's behaviors are just the tip of the iceberg. And that really, when we're having conversations about supporting children who are presenting with challenging behaviors, we need to be having conversations about supporting children's nervous systems and to support their nervous systems. Like you explained so well, they need co-regulation with adults. They need adults to create systems that help support their nervous systems. And yet the majority of our schools are filled with practices that are rooted in science from decades and decades ago that we now have learned is outdated. And incomplete.
1: Absolutely. The science may have been valuable and was valuable in some in some applications 60 years ago, but we now the science is revealing it, particularly the, the decade of the brain, right? The 1990s was the decade of the brain. A slew of information coming out of so many um, uh, institutions, including Harvard Center on the Developing Child, on how humans develop resilience. There's only one way human beings develop resilience, and that is through relationships of trust and safety. And somehow that knowledge is lost in the education system, which is entrenched in behavior management. And I agree with you. It breaks my heart. I don't know. I I understand system change takes a long time. But one of the reasons I shifted uh, for, my own, for my own sanity, shifted from doing all of my work in, in um, being in schools and IEPs and teaching this stuff to writing and being a little bit more of a, of a disruptor and in social media is that it's, it's not okay when children are getting additional stress from the methods that are meant to help them. And that's our public money. And that's not okay with with me. As a psychologist, I want parents to know if their child is that little child that you noticed, whose hand was being held up and whose whose, um, behavior chart was getting, uh, he was getting his his level dropped on the behavior chart. That is an insult to that child's body budget. That shame and, and and. eyes on him, not only is that an insult to that child's body budget, to everyone else in the class who is sensitive to maybe that's going to happen to me, their Mm -hmm. little hearts were racing too. So you have a whole classroom with, again, a well-intentioned teacher who is probably carrying out her, her master's project or something she learned about really excellent behavior management that doesn't consider the nervous system and the nervous system's need for safety as the primary need of humans, especially those kids who have agitated behaviors.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what the body budget is? And particularly, it would be great if you could help me understand the term allostasis, which I think I'm still trying to wrap my head around.
1: Yeah, that is okay. So one of the one of the things that I'm introducing is a concept from um, one of the world's leading um, neuroscientists researchers, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and I think I'm the first person to translate her work into a parenting application. And I think also, which is so needed. Oh, it's so needed, and and it's just so cool when. when um, research can have a real life application that that reduces suffering and helps make life better for people, <laughs> so that so anyway, um, okay, allostasis. Think about um, the um, the brain and body as connected. So oftentimes we're thinking about our our brain. And how important our brain is, but our brain is connected to our body through the many uh, nerves. But the, the vagal nerve is the is the biggest one. It's our central nervous system includes our brain and our body. The information that comes up to our brain is coming from our sense organs from our body, both inside of our body and from the world. So our essentially, our operating instructions for how to move our bodies is coming up through the brain, but the operating instructions is from the body, oh. which brings in the term allostasis. Dr. Feldman Barrett is telling us that her, her lab and her research is showing that prior to uh, what we may have thought before that the brain has evolved for thinking that she believes that the brain has evolved for maintaining the systems of our body. Mm. So rather than thinking that um, the brain is there to, as the highest purpose to think the energy that goes on in our brain is constantly making sure our body is safe and in working condition. That means it is running all of those systems uh, and keeping us in homeostasis. So think about the, you know, uh, it's regulating the water, the oxygen, the sugar, the glucose, all of those things that we need to actually physically stay well in the moment, stay upright and and. Everything that we do, uh, every interaction we have with a person, every stressor we encounter, every loving thing that happens to us is either a withdrawal or deposit into our allostasis, which she calls the body budget. Mm. So allostasis is regulation of of our body, and she is likening it to a bank account which I just love because we can think of our children as having and ourselves as having a body budget. So if your child, for example, is slept really poorly the night before, and they may be getting, uh, getting some teeth in, right. They're teething and then maybe they're a toddler. Those two things are going to decrease the balance in the child's body budget so that they may have more agitated behaviors, Um, the next day because those behaviors are reflecting a nervous system that's a little bit more vulnerable to stress that day. Mm -hmm. So we can think about ourselves as having body budgets and, and the, the withdrawals and the deposits that we make into the body budget are really critical when it comes to our kids. So again, take I'm just thinking about that child in the classroom. Yeah. Say he was he was um, pulling things off someone else's desk, or maybe he was trying to run out of the classroom or some egregious thing that involved what would look like as major noncompliance. Moving your body in ways that you're not w- very well controlled are a sign of your nervous system in that what I call the red pathway in, in, in a fight or flight state. And what a little human needs or a big human needs, for that matter, in that state is a deposit into their body budget, not a withdrawal. So what would an
0: example of a deposit be?
1: Yeah. So an example of a deposit would be if, if that teacher would have come up alongside that child and said, sweetheart, I noticed that you are like trying to move out of your seat and it's really hard to stay still. I'm wondering if you might want to come and sit with me. And be my special helper.
0: Mm.
1: I see you. The message is, hey, I'm going to make a deposit emotionally right now with the tone of my voice, my posture, my, my willingness to give relational security to this child. Because I understand that an out of control child is a vulnerable nervous system in need of relational support.
0: So a so deposit into a body budget is like a connective act, a connective act where we're reinforcing a child's story of belonging and helping them feel compassion or acceptance and ultimately not feeling alone. And by having a connective act, we're making a deposit in their body budget and helping them to feel safe.
1: Absolutely. And there's a whole range of deposits into the body budget because we're talking physiology. So a hug or a connective act is a deposit. Mm. If a child is hungry, food is a deposit. Mm. If a child needs a hug, a hug is a deposit. If a child needs sleep, taking a nap or a good night of sleep is a deposit. So we there are a whole range of deposits, but certainly a, a relational deposit is one of the most powerful ones we can give, especially if we can't necessarily allow the child to sleep right then we can offer, we can offer the child, our regulation. And that's kind of essentially what co-regulation is. We offer our regulation and they breathe it in through this, this sense of uh, what we call neuros, what Dr. Porges calls neuroception, this ability to breathe in somebody else's um calmness and and feeling safe and just just to counterpoint that with a a withdrawal from you know a body budget a withdrawal is humiliation or shaming Mm. that takes away from your allostasis that takes away from your body budget somebody um again like putting you in a timeout or this is why I don't like sticker charts or or behavior charts at school. When a child's when a teacher moves a child or has the child move their own sticker up or down, depending on their behavior.
0: Um and, that- and it also is so essential for us to have such compassion for those educators because so often they feel so overwhelmed and so under-resourced and unsupported themselves that they feel like they have to resort to this short-term compliance strategy of trying to utilize shame or threats or fear, or humiliation in order to intentionally activate a child to try to manipulate them, to get them to do what they want. Though what those educators don't know And aren't seeing is how that's actually undermining that child's ability to transform their behavior in the long term because they're with they're taking withdrawals from their body budget. And often even in the short term, it ends up not being effective, which is why sticker charts or clip charts end up not being effective for those children who show up with the most challenging behaviors, because ultimately what those children are telling those educators is they're showing up with the most vulnerable platforms And what that educator is doing is they're making their nervous system even more vulnerable by attempting a short-term compliance strategy like shaming intentionally or threatening or humiliating.
1: Yes, yes. And or even positive reinforcement, because sometimes that it just has the effect of making the child feel like they're only as good as their last good behavior. You know, and this is where, you know, we're like, oh, good sitting still or good uh, holding your body still. When that cost of holding the body still is so strong, we may be inadvertently giving the child the message that you need to look a certain way before I'm going to recognize you and give you my my um, positive attention. And but let me just reinforce what you said at the beginning of that, Matt, because I think it's so important. That our teachers are stretched, our teachers' body budgets are shot, especially now with the third year of a pandemic. Our teachers are heroes in my mind, and I have so much totally. respect and and gratitude towards them. And I just hope, if any teacher is listening to this, you are hearing a very a, 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 a kind of a new and, and um, evolving paradigm that's coming from from you know neuroscience and compassion research but please know we're not we're not saying that you don't that you are intending to withdraw something from a kid's body budget your your educate your school our public school system our education system for teachers is teaching you how to do this it's expected that you have compliant classrooms and behavior charts are practically you know, like bread and butter for education. So it is an unusual situation. And I'm hoping that um, people like you and I, when we're talking about this and in my book, um, my book, Brain, Body, Parenting is explaining it piece by piece, breaking it down as to what we should do instead based on an understanding and a, and a, a really a respect for the human body and brain. Yeah.
0: No. I wonder, what if there are educators listening who are thinking, I already have so much on my plate, and now you want me to make more time for connecting with these children and meeting even more of their needs? I'm doing as much as I can. Do I really have time to be trying to connect with them in this way? What do you say when an educator says, really, do we even have time for all of that?
1: Yeah, I say I totally hear you. <laughs> and who, who has extra time, especially teachers? Oh my gosh. But here's what I say. Contrary to popular belief, when when you don't when you go with the flow of a child's behavior and aren't afraid of it, and when I say afraid, I think we are so judgmental of Behaviors that appear to be oppositional. But all it takes is shifting your lens. It doesn't take more energy. In fact, if you relax and allow yourself to make a lens shift in your mind about when you see a child with an oppositional behavior, um, it doesn't necessarily signal you have to work harder at creating a behavior strategy for the child. But what you can do is relax into the knowledge that this is a child who's struggling and this child would do well if they, if they could, as Ross my friend Ross Green says, but they need support. And so it actually can reduce your stress load. If you, if you try it, just try it. Look at a child who's having a really hard time and then with as much compassion as you can muster, offer some compassion to that child. Like, I see you, this human, honey, I see you. Maybe you need a a little break. Would you like to just Chill out, or would you like to come and be a helper in my class in the class right now, or or you know offer something else? Maybe there's an aide in the classroom who can help you, um, who can sit with the child for a moment and just offer a few minutes of human connection. You'd be shocked at how that shifts the child nervous system into the what we call the green pathway that allows the child to have. Socially cooperative behaviors because they want to. That's our natural state when we're feeling safe. So,
0: you know, I I think about the phrase Dr. Brené Brown uses, which is, "You can either, when we don't make time for attending to fears and feelings in the front end, you will always spend time in the back end attending to." challenging, problematic behaviors. And what I hear you saying, and what I see you talking about in both of your books is you are empowering educators and parents with a playbook of how they can attend to feelings and fears in the front end, so that there are less of those challenging behaviors because we will know how to more effectively meet children's needs that are going on below the surface.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Yes. It, it when we when we think of behaviors as the tip of the iceberg and and understanding that there's so much more than discipline. And I have to admit that before I I studied, you know, did my study, I had a couple of children myself. And I would I used timeouts and uh, what was called authoritative. Positive parenting, you know that literature on high authority, high uh, warmth and engagement. I did all that, um, but I treated behaviors as personally my problem. Like I was a bad mom if I mm. didn't get that behavior taken care of, nip it in the bud. You know, that's how I was. That's I think our culture is kind of ingrained in in that, and parents feel so much pressure. And I do, you know, I get it. I did too. We feel so much pressure. We feel so judged. And, and it's a really hard job to be a parent. You want to raise up your child right. So um, this information is very freeing and, and it is in some ways we have to just trust it. And that's that's trusting a process. I know that sounds like a lot, because when you said, you know, how teach how do teachers add something new? But the main thing we're adding new is changing our own thoughts and our own beliefs about the meaning of behaviors and going from fearing them or thinking or judging them to really appreciating them for what they're telling us about another human being.
0: And whenever I'm having conversations about polyvagal theory or our nervous systems and the stories that we carry about behaviors, I think first about our kids. And then I also think about the adults who work with kids, you know, as, as we've been talking about so much of the way that systems relate to children today have to do with our stories about children's behaviors and what they mean. And you talk about us understanding the difference between a nervous system, stress response, and a purposeful misbehavior. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious What do you think is the proportion of challenging behaviors that we see, particularly if we just focus on like an elementary school of the challenging behaviors that we see children displaying in elementary school? What percentage of those are purposeful, intentional misbehaviors compared to nervous system stress responses?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Honestly. In a school setting, I would have to say, I really believe that children do well when they can. So I would say that the vast majority I would probably be I probably would say 90 percent are stress responses because I believe children are not incentivized in their hearts to do wrong. So I would say it's north. It's 90 percent and of I'm not saying of course, that children aren't little scientists and don't test limits. Of course they do. And as if you've ever worked, if you've ever been around a toddler, you know, they're constantly little scientists and we have to, we have to um, help help them understand what's okay and what's not okay. But misbehavior in school is, is a different story. And the amount of stimulation and the amount of sensory processing. What I what do I mean by that? The amount of noise and chaos and movement and independence that we're requiring from children with only, you know, not too many adults there to co-regulate their little bodies and their, their affects and their minds. Um, I, I really believe that these stress reactions are happening and we are unintentionally um, misperceiving them as needing discipline or needing to have a, uh, you know, a, a behavior plan to get them to be better behaved. I really believe that that is barking up the wrong tree.
0: I'm totally, totally with you. And, you know, another piece of this is even many of those purposeful misbehaviors that I've seen with children. And even within my own life, I, I I struggle with ADHD and being overstimulated and under-resourced for most of my childhood. And the story I began to believe, even from a very, very young age, was that I was bad and that I, I stressed out teachers and I caused problems. And eventually what that meant was I created an identity around that. I believe that that's how I related with the world. And like you said, our brain is a meaning-making machine that is always trying to keep us safe and make sense of the world based on what we are experiencing. So it wants to make sense of our experience and new experiences. It's really just looking for the shortest, quickest way to have it align with what is already within our system. It, it wants to take new experiences, and it's not necessarily biased towards truth. It's biased towards coherence, aligning the new experience with what all of our past experiences have been. And what that means is if I form an identity around being someone who causes problems in a classroom, who isn't liked by my teacher, then actually I may even begin to seek evidence for that so that the story of what I believe about my world is reinforced so that I can feel secure so that even if my nervous system feels triggered, it may feel familiar to me. And so that begins to feel familiar. And so even that purposeful misbehavior can often be traced back to challenges in relationship.
1: Oh, that is just so stunningly well put. Yes. Even that purposeful misbehavior, which will be happening on a subconscious level for a survival reason, for to in order to make it through this hour, this moment, can be traced back to the predictions that your brain is making forward based on past experiences. There, those past experiences start to inform our brain's from the moment we're born. And you may not have had a caring adult who is offering you different explanations for your behavior other than messages, again, and they may have been well-meaning people, but messages that you're choosing to misbehave or you're squirrely or you're just, you're a, a troublemaker or you're just not, you know, you didn't get somebody in your ear saying, hey, buddy, it seems like it's hard to focus right now. Hey, that's cool. You know, your body's needing to move. Let's check that out. We're all different. You know, you didn't have that angel on your shoulder or person in your life that many children don't have because we are so indoctrinated to be afraid of behaviors. When of you know, it just, it just, or, or label them in a DSM way. Like, anxiety, ADHD, uh, oppositional defiance, conduct disorder. I'm not saying that ADHD isn't a um, a, a legitimate um, a deal that has um, a medical presentation. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that our children are are often told they have something, rather, you know. And what what does that do? It's like, oh, tell a five year old, I have, you have ADHD, or you have anxiety, or you or you have oppositional defiant disorder. I've seen little children, you know, pediatricians tell them that. We need to yeah. change the narrative to let children know that their body is adapting and protecting them. And we're going to help them adapt and protect them in a way that might be a little bit more um, uh, that that's, that's easier and gentler on their nervous systems.
0: Absolutely. And I love that, how you're framing this conversation, that it's not about us attacking the labels of diagnoses, that diagnoses can serve a purpose, however, When we look at how diagnoses and labeling and pathologizing, how those tendencies are impacting how children are currently being raised and treated and supported, we have some serious problems and we need to expand our conversation. We need to be expanding our conversation. We need to be expanding how we're giving support so we're actually more truly and more deeply meeting children's needs. One example I think of is children with ADHD. Yes. The vast majority of children who are diagnosed with ADHD who are receiving treatment, over around 80%, are only receiving medication as treatment. Despite the fact that the American Psychiatric Association, the first line of recommended treatment is behavioral therapy. And the second line of recommended treatment is behavioral therapy in combination with medication. And then only then the third line of recommended treatment is medication. And medication certainly is useful and is a helpful tool in supporting people and navigating their life so they can connect and contribute. And we need to make sure that we are having full conversations about what children need. That when we're not having conversations that include a child's nervous system and what it needs. And when we're not having conversations around the relationships in the child's life and the systems that a child exists within, then we're having incomplete conversations that aren't fully supporting what's best for a child.
1: I couldn't agree more. Those incomplete conversations are siloed into everyone's area of specialty, Right, psychiatry doesn't talk to mental health, and educators don't talk to mental health therapists. Our systems are pretty siloed um, because our education of of different disciplines that treat children are that's how they that's how they were taught way back then when we thought the brain is actually sliced into different pieces, but they all communicate to each other, yeah. and medication is it's, it's not that if with ADHD, it's not that simple, right? It's not simply a chemical imbalance.
0: Because even if you then get medication that may raise the floor of your capabilities, but ultimately it's not teaching you new skills and it's not building new neural pathways. So even if a child is receiving medication and even if they're receiving the best medication for them, they still need other supports and treatments in order to expand their ability to connect and contribute in the world.
1: Yes. And there's so many wonderful things we can do to help children uh, bolster, you know, what we would call executive function, you know, that ability to be a little executive and, and to plan and to organize and, and all that stuff, you don't, you can, you you don't really need till you're out of high school. Right. So just there's <laughs> so much we can do to help kids. Yes. And, and it's a missed opportunity when we don't, when we just do one pathway and on the idea of ADHD, there's a lot of new research on, on it as well. And I'm, I, I, Familiar with Dr. Ned Hollowell? I don't know if you know of his work. I'm, but I'm thinking that there are, are so many um, positive aspects to people who have been labeled with ADHD that it is yeah, also going to be looked at. I think, as a form of neurodivergence that we don't need to um, necessarily consider a disorder. We just look at the things in a person's life that is causing them some suffering and work on those. But why can't we have tolerance for different levels of movement and how fast people think and and how I mean, some of the (laughs) some of the top executives I've had the privilege of knowing were labeled with ADHD ADHD. And in childhood and they're brilliant, amazing people and they're unusually, unusually interesting to me and I love them. So we need to give children also the message that they are loved for who they are and that their brain wasn't a mistake, you know, that they they are, they are whole humans and, and we all have individual differences. It's just the matter of what they are.
0: You know, and something that's coming up for me in this conversation is how really this all returns back to regulation and lack of having the co-regulation that we need in order to build the nervous systems that we need in order to navigate the complexity of life. Because ultimately, when we don't receive the regulation support that we need through our childhood, then it becomes difficult for us to develop emotional regulation skills. And what then tends to happen is we can relate with our emotions as if they are problems to be solved rather than experiences to be had. And in that space, we then can see anything that causes us discomfort as something that our nervous system then gets activated by. Meaning if our child is doing something that is different from the norm and it makes us uncomfortable or our child is navigating some challenge that we believe we need to solve immediately there. And then that much of the conversation we're having about creating behavior management systems or relying only on medication as a solution to solve any challenges that a child is facing, that much of it often comes back to us as adults, having an inability to really hold the complexity of our emotional experience Mm. in order to have the conversation about systems that are not functioning in ways that fully meet needs. That because a conversation about the systems that aren't meeting our needs is such an overwhelming conversation. Instead, we really crave quick fixes. We really crave and yearn for and want quick fixes and quick solutions.
1: We do. And, you know, it's so hard being human. It's so hard being a parent <laughs> and we do crave it, it would, uh, you know, who doesn't want a quick fix, right? And, <laughs> and, and especially when we're kind of sold a bill of goods that there is a quick fix. I don't, again, I don't mean that any like physician who would prescribe medication outside of recommending maybe some counseling or, or, or maybe, you know, doing something in addition is, is purposefully trying to um, not give parents the whole story, but we parents get a lot of ideas that there are quick fixes and that they're effective. And again, I, I love um, I love your podcast because you are opening this wide open, you're opening the aperture of our lens to say, there is so much more. And, and another thing I love about, um, your, your podcast is that you allow for self-reflection and self-awareness, because I think as parents, the biggest gift we can give to ourselves that will benefit our child is becoming aware of the responses that we have when our children are struggling because just like you said, we get, we have nervous systems, we get triggered. And when we want to solve a problem right away, especially if we get activated in our own fight or flight, we can say or do things that we later feel really yucky about. And I know I did that a lot as a parent. We all do. We all get activated. So let's just say it's part of being human, but this, this is why I think that mindfulness in whatever you feel that it is. I'm not talking about it in like any sort of spiritual way, but just the awareness of one's state is there's so much research behind it, because I think that it really is a window into our nervous system. And once we understand that a nervous system in distress needs a nervous system that's not in distress, and that's Mm -hmm. where we can be the leaders for our children. We can say, I'm going to prioritize my own physical and mental health i'm going to have compassion for my history and start to understand my triggers as a parent that in and of itself is such a gift to your child and
0: well dr delahook i'm so inspired by the work that you're doing and it's such a gift that you are taking such complex concepts that really are, are cutting edge in the science and you are translating them in, into real world applications in ways that are accessible and digestible, which is a skillful thing to do. It is not always uh, an easy task and you are doing it gracefully. And I am just so excited to continue to see the work that you're putting out there in the world. If folks are listening and they, they want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about maybe polyvagal theory and helping children regulate their nervous system, maybe even learning for themselves a little bit more about neurobiology. Um, Where would you direct them?
1: Oh, well, I've got a lot of resources uh, at my website, uh, monadelahook.com, a blog and... Just uh, a lot of resources and um, Facebook and uh, Instagram at um, Dr. Mona Hook, where I try to post research that's interesting and relevant and, and hot off the press. So join me on social and um, yeah, my, I'm hoping that, um, that these resources will help parents suffer less and find more joy with their kids. I'm so grateful to be with you today.
0: Suffer less and find more joy. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. I certainly feel like I'm finding more joy from this conversation. So thank you for for being here, Dr. Delahook and everybody else.
1: Thank you.